I've been wanting to make this episode for quite some time, but I've always been nervous about this specific topic. This story is deeply political, incredibly religious, and almost unbelievably violent. Not the best recipe for a safe episode. While I try my best to have a balance of uplifting and tragic stories from history, this one falls squarely in the latter category. This episode explores sickening instances of human depravity and contains scenes of graphic violence. You've been warned. I'm Jake Barton. Welcome to Historium. Episode 30, The Cages of Moonster. What a strange task. As a young clergyman at the Catholic Cathedral in Munster in the year of our Lord, 1585, he had done many strange tasks before, but nothing like this. One by one, he unloaded the bones from the hanging iron cage and placed them in a sackcloth bag. He had heard the stories of how these men were captured and tortured for heresy and treason. He did his best to avoid thinking about the horrific pain of their final moments. He was removing the bones because the other clergymen believed this to be too strange of a resting place, even for men like them. After he had gathered all of the bones, he turned to the nearby priest. But what of the cages, he asked. The priest turned to him and said, Leave them. The 1520s were a strange time in Europe. The Protestant Reformation was in full swing, and the recent invention of the printing press just added fuel to the fire. Radical ideas that were once considered heresy by the Catholic Church were now available for the common man, in a language anyone could read. Lutheranism split from Catholicism, and then dozens more denominations split off from Lutheranism. When Martin Luther said God could talk to anyone, not just the Catholic priests, then he effectively released the Protestant movement from his control. He washed his hands of the responsibility of biblical interpretation. When God could talk to everyone, then God could talk to anyone. Pandora's box had been opened. These various religious schisms caused turmoil and societal upheaval throughout Europe. A massive peasants' revolt had just ravaged the German countryside with over 100,000 peasant casualties. Religious fervor from various new sects threatened old institutions. Power structures that had held for generations suddenly began to be questioned. People's lives were marred by a profound uncertainty. One of the groups that suffered the most during this time was the Anabaptists. In short, Anabaptists were against infant baptism. They believed that baptism, one of the holy sacraments, only worked if you believed, and that infants were far too young to make a conscious choice and truly believe in what they were doing. Because of this, they would baptize people again as they converted. Oftentimes, these baptisms were referred to as second baptisms, because they had already been forcibly baptized as an infant. Despite this being a pretty standard Protestant practice today, especially in the United States, Anabaptism was considered very, very radical at the time. Adult baptism was labeled a crime in many places in Europe. There were several different sects of Anabaptism, but in general, it was incredibly dangerous to be an Anabaptist in Europe in the 1500s. One of the few things that both Catholics and these new Lutherans agreed on was that these Anabaptists were just simply too radical. 
they were regularly exiled, tortured, and killed. A common form of execution was being strapped to a pole and then being dunked into water until the Anabaptists drowned. This form of execution was often referred to as the Third Baptism. Anabaptists encountered violence and persecution on a daily basis. In the face of all this oppression, one prominent Anabaptist leader by the name of Melchor Hoffman was led to believe that these were the end times. He predicted that the apocalypse would begin in 1534, exactly 15 centuries after the death of Christ. He also gave an exact location, the city of Strasbourg in the Holy Roman Empire. You may remember this city from episode 2 of this podcast, when we looked at the so-called Dancing Plague that affected the city a few hundred years prior. Melchor Hoffman claimed that Strasbourg would be the new Jerusalem, and that 144,000 believers would be able to survive the coming Judgment Day there. Many Anabaptists truly believed that they were living in the end times, that soon it would be the end of the world, and people do strange things when they think it's the end of the world. Melchor Hoffman was eventually arrested and taken captive, but his prophecy was already let loose upon the world, and it was spreading fast. Many Anabaptist leaders, realizing that Strasbourg had begun cracking down on Anabaptism, declared that Melchor Hoffman was right about the time of Judgment Day, but he was wrong about the place. They declared that the New Jerusalem would not be in Strasbourg, but in the nearby city to the north, the city of Munster. Munster was a fairly large, fortified city in what's now northern Germany, but was then part of the Holy Roman Empire. It was the intersection of numerous political, economic, cultural, and religious movements that made tensions run high throughout the city. Religiously, the city was about half Catholic and half Lutheran, with a sizable minority of Anabaptists. The city's government was run by a town council, which at the time was fairly rare. The economic elite of the city were a mixture of old money blue bloods and new money capitalists and guild leaders. Munster's economy was fueled by a strange mixture of feudalism and capitalism. The city ruler was Franz von Waldeck, a prince bishop who wielded both political and religious power, but he rarely lived in the city. All of these competing factors, old money versus new money, Catholic versus Protestant, feudalism versus capitalism, church versus state, all of these factors created an atmosphere of tension in the city of Munster. And no one stoked these tensions better than Bernard Rothman. Rothman was a rabble-rouser through and through. He preached fiery messages in Lutheran churches throughout the city and viciously denounced infant baptism. He even led raids into Catholic churches to destroy icons and saintly artifacts, proclaiming that no one should worship bones of saints or images of the Mother Mary. He was constantly in trouble with the city authorities and was almost killed several times. The only reason that he wasn't taken and executed immediately was because he had friends in high places, or one friend at least. A member of the town council, Bernard Nipperdalling, was sympathetic to Rothman's views and made sure the town council didn't do anything to disrupt Hoffman's ministry. Nipperdalling could do this because he had amassed immense wealth as a cloth merchant and was a prominent member in the local guild. Aside from bailing Rothman out of trouble when he was in hot water with the town council, Nipperdalling had one of the most powerful tools in the world at that time, his very own printing press. 
Both Bernards used this printing press to print pamphlets that leaned Lutheran, but eventually began to lead more towards full-on radical Anabaptism. These pamphlets would be passed around Munster and distributed to nearby cities. Once Nipper, Dalling, and Rothman realized their reach, they began urging the Anabaptists all over to act. The pamphlets railed against private property and called for all Anabaptists to come be a part of the 144,000 of God's elect that would live in perfect community in Munster through the end times. But they added an important detail that was out of character for the usually pacifistic Anabaptists. They told them all to come armed. The pamphlets began having subtly violent tones. The pamphlets coming out of Munster drew the attention of prominent leaders in the Anabaptist movement throughout Northern Europe, one of which was Jan Matthias. Jan Matthias was originally a baker from Northern Holland, but had become a fervent Anabaptist preacher. He was closely followed by a man named John Van Leiden. This Van Leiden was a failed actor, then a failed bar owner, then a failed tailor, and now a successful disciple of Jan Matthias. These two, Jan Matthias and John Van Leiden, made their way south from the Dutch territories to the city of Munster. When they arrived, they gleefully realized that they were far from the only ones to have the same idea to go there. An influx of new Anabaptists in Munster drastically changed the demographics of the city. Not only did thousands of Anabaptists from all over Europe arrive, but many Catholics, seeing the balance tip out of their favor, simply fled to neighboring cities. As the demographics changed, so did the town council. The influx of Anabaptists meant more Protestant representation on the council, and also meant policies could no longer be enacted to suppress Anabaptists from now on. Bernard Nipperdalling sent out even more pamphlets proclaiming Munster as a safe city for all Anabaptists. Bernard Rothman met with Jan Matthias, who was the closest thing Anabaptists had to a celebrity, and together, they planned out fiery sermons. In one week, 1,400 people proclaimed themselves Anabaptists and were re-baptized. The speed at which this Anabaptist invasion took place was baffling to the Catholics and Lutherans in the city, and it terrified the Prince Bishop, Franz von Waldeck. He began quickly writing letters to other leaders from other cities across the Holy Roman Empire, warning of another potential peasant's revolt. He struggled with what to do, because these Anabaptists were not violent, but they were heavily armed. On February 8, 1534, John Van Leiden, with an actor's flair for the dramatic, left Bernard Nipperdalling's house, along with Nipperdalling himself, and they began foaming at the mouth, screaming that the end of the world was coming very soon. They began writhing on the ground, and the religious fervor spread to others, Many thought that the population had been drugged as mass religious hysteria spread out from the town square. The next day, Anabaptism was officially legitimized by the town council, and power was bestowed upon their prophet leaders, Bernard Rothman, Jan Matthias, and John Van Leiden. 300 years before Karl Marx, these Anabaptist prophets began preaching communism. Personal property was abolished, church supplies were looted and distributed amongst everyone. Nuns of the local convent were encouraged to quit being nuns and marry Anabaptist men. Nuns left the Munster convent in droves. 
Catholic and Lutheran churches were raided and seized. Church sculptures, paintings, and books were destroyed. At this point, any sensible Catholic or moderate Protestant decided it was time to get out of there. There was a mass exodus of Catholics and Lutherans, and the Anabaptists rejoice, moving into their old houses and collecting whatever those leaving the city could not carry with them. Within merely a few months, Anabaptists had complete control over the city of Munster. The Prince Bishop began raising an army and hiring mercenaries. Jan Matthias found himself as the de facto leader of this new Jerusalem. When Martin Luther declared that anyone could now communicate with God at any time, well, Matthias took this very, very literally. Oftentimes, he would seemingly be interrupted by an unseen person. He would ask God what his will was and would appear to get a direct answer in the snap of a finger. How could anyone argue with Jan Matthias when he had a direct link to the voice of God? As soon as Matthias was in charge, he said that God wanted every non-Anabaptist in the city to be immediately killed. This horrified Bernard Nipperdaling, who had been a prominent leader in the city for quite some time. He knew that there were still plenty of people in the city who were on the fence and begged Jan Matthias to have mercy. Matthias looked at the sky and then nodded. He said that they would not be killed, but that they would all have to leave immediately. All of the Catholics and Lutherans who had not already converted or who had not already left were forced to leave. On the date of their exile, it was snowing heavily. Not allowed to take any of their belongings, men, women, and children were thrown out of the city and into the snow. The city gates closed behind them. They faced incredible hardships and an uncertain future. But in the end, they may have ended up the lucky ones. Because what will happen in Munster only gets stranger and stranger. Very soon after, Prince Bishop von Waldeck began his siege. Soldiers surrounded the city in a three-mile circumference. However, hundreds of Anabaptists were still arriving each day. Many snuck in through holes in the line of the siege and made it to the city. Others were caught and either turned away or killed. Meanwhile, in the city, Jan Matthias's grip tightened. He ordered every single book in the city that was not the Bible to be burned. Remember, at this point, books are incredibly rare, treasured items. These books were of incredible value, and each one of them was thrown gleefully into large fire pits throughout the city. The only books that remained were the Bibles, and Jan Matthias, who claimed to be able to literally talk to God, was the sole interpreter. One night, a young guard on duty was complaining about the book burning and the recent authoritarianism of the new regime. But he was overheard by someone close to those in power, and word got back to Jan Matthias that someone was spreading dissatisfaction about the head prophet of the New Jerusalem. The next day, Jan Matthias had this young guard captured and brought him tied up to an open field in the city. The entire city's population was then summoned to the field. Matthias stood over the tied-up guard and proclaimed that the man had been inhabited by an evil spirit. He said that the spirit had challenged their prophet, who had been sent by God himself. Matthias announced an example must be made of him. John Van Leiden stepped forward and swung an axe into the guard's back. The guard screamed out in pain, but didn't die. 
a pistol is taken from the crowd, and the guard was shot in the head. However, he still didn't die, and he's taken away screaming, where he died a few days later. The crowd was absolutely horrified. At this moment, Jan Matthias became judge, jury, and executioner. He then ordered the crowd standing in the field to start singing praises to God, for justice had been carried out. The townsfolk erupted into hymns surrounding the spot where a man who had simply questioned authority had been stabbed and then shot. But Matthias recognized a few people in the crowd who were not as enthusiastic about what had just happened. He noticed a few people with concerned looks on their faces, some asking questions to their peers. Suddenly, Jan Matthias screamed out a date. He proclaimed that some people in Munster did not truly believe. He said anyone who converted after that date was now suspect. Everyone who had converted to Anabaptism after the date that Jan Matthias said was then rounded up and taken to the cathedral. Jan Matthias told them that he would commune with God for a few hours and see if God wanted them to live or not. He then locked the cathedral doors and assigned guards outside. Imagine being one of those people waiting in that cathedral, weighing your options, terrified by each passing moment, truly discerning what your beliefs are worth to you. A few hours later, the cathedral door opened. Jan Matthias entered with several armed men. Immediately, the people in the church cried out for forgiveness. They begged for mercy, some even crawling along the floor to kiss the prophet's boots. Jan Matthias let them beg for quite some time before saying, Because I have argued on your behalf, God has chosen to forgive you. The people cried out in joy and began praising his name. In that act of brilliant totalitarian manipulation, Jan Matthias cemented himself as the absolute, unchallenged prophet and leader of Munster. Now this whole situation sounds horrific to us in modern times, but we have to try to get inside the heads of these Anabaptists in Munster. These people had been persecuted for their entire lives simply because of what they believed, and now they were allowed to worship as they chose. They truly believed that they were the elect chosen believers who would ascend into heaven when Judgment Day came, and Judgment Day was coming soon. There must have been a profound religious ecstasy throughout the entire city. It was now right before Easter, right before many people in Munster believed the world would end. Now, most people in Munster still believe that more Anabaptists were on their way, seeing as there were far fewer than the 144,000 mentioned in the book of Revelation. However, the leadership of Munster found out that a large group of thousands of Anabaptists were just turned away. Around this time, Jan Matthias appeared to have a seizure, and when he recovered, he yelled, Not my will, but yours be done, Lord. He gathered about ten men and said that they were to go face the siege head-on, and that God would deliver them. Matthias viewed himself as David facing Goliath. Easter Sunday, 1534, High Noon. Jan Matthias and his chosen men mounted horses. The city gates were opened. They rode out to face the siege. As many townsfolk that could fit went to the top of the city walls to watch. 
Their prophet leader led the group through the no-man's land between the city walls and the besieging army. David versus Goliath. A scout in the Prince Bishop's army yelled over to his commander. He was surprised to see just under a dozen men charging at the besieging forces. The commander ordered 500 of his elite cavalry to charge them. What was Jan Matthias feeling in that moment? Fear? Certainty? Doubt? The elite cavalry closed in on the prophet of Munster and his men, and then the Prince Bishop's forces promptly slaughtered them all. The people watching from the walls of Munster witnessed their great prophet stuck with a spear. They watched as his guts poured out onto no man's land. They watched the man they had put every ounce of faith they had into be cut up into pieces on the ground. People on the walls vomited. Mothers averted their children's eyes. All of their hopes had been slaughtered with their prophet. See, when it comes to David and Goliath scenarios in history, most of the time, Goliath wins. As the Prince Bishop's army began mounting Jan Matthias's head on a stake, many Anabaptists went down from the walls. Not quite what you'd call Happy Easter. Many people in Munster debated suicide, or simply surrendering to the Prince Bishop outright. Others entered a state of denial and proclaimed that Jan Matthias would, like Christ, rise from the dead on the third day. At this point, the surviving leaders began trying to figure out what to do where to go from there. That evening, still Easter Sunday, John Van Leiden made a grand entrance on Bernard Nipperdaling's balcony overlooking the main city square. Van Leiden, dressed in all white with his classic flair for the dramatic, proclaimed for all to hear that he knew this would happen. He said that he knew Jan Matthias would disobey God. He said that God had punished Matthias for not going to face the siege alone. John Van Leiden explained that he had been foretold all of this in a dream a week ago. At this point, Van Leiden read the crowd and saw that not everyone was convinced. So he ushered Bernard Nipperdaling, a man many of those in the crowd had voted into the town council, to the balcony. He explained that everything Van Leiden said was true because he had told him one week ago as well. The trustworthy cloth merchant apparently backed up Van Leiden's story. The townspeople's hope was restored. In a rare historical example, an incredibly charismatic cult-like leader was killed and successfully replaced by another. The monopoly of knowing God's will was suddenly transferred to the hands of John Van Leiden. That night, a soldier in the Prince Bishop's army secretly went to the outside of Munster and nailed Jan Matthias's genitals to the city wall. It's safe to say that Jan Matthias may have been crazy, but he wasn't a charlatan. A con man wouldn't have faced the siege like that. John Van Leiden, however, in my opinion, appears to be what Matthias wasn't, nothing more than a charismatic charlatan. Within a few days of becoming the new leader of Munster, John Van Leiden showed up in the town square completely naked. He refused to speak. Someone brought him something to write with, and he communicated that he had been struck mute by God 
until he could finish hearing what God's plans were for the city of Munster. The city waited for their prophet to speak. After a time, he did. And when he did, he radically changed the power structure of Munster. He made several decrees. One was creating a high council of 12 men. Van Leiden claimed that God had also told him the exact names of these men. They all happened to be close allies of the prophet. Each member of the new high council was given a special broadsword. With it, any of them could kill anyone they pleased, and it would automatically be justified by God. Van Leiden also instituted old Levitical laws and took the biblical passage for the wages of sin is death absolutely literally. Any person caught sinning in any way was to be killed. But there was a way out. There was only one person in Munster who could ask God to forgive any townsperson on his behalf. Take a guess who that man was. Yep, John Van Leiden. Essentially, Van Leiden had an excuse to kill anyone in Munster at any time. In addition to these religious decrees, Van Leiden also declared that God had told him to prepare the city for battle. Strict military training was mandatory for everyone in the city, men, women, and children. Everything metal was melted down into armor or weapons or cannonballs. Church steeples were turned into gun platforms for the city's cannons. Traps were set in and around the city walls. Munster was turning into a fortress full of fanatics. This entire time, the Prince Bishop had been deciding whether or not to begin opening fire upon the walls of the city. The issue was that Munster was his city, and any damage he did recapturing it, well, he would inevitably have to pay for. This delayed the Prince Bishop from mounting an attack, but that all changed on May 27, 1534. Thousands of men were simply serving in the Prince Bishop's usual standing army, However, the majority of the men besieging the city were mercenaries from throughout Northern Europe. Some were paid a substantial sum, but most of them were paid only in the loot that they could take from the city. There was the constant desire to want to be the first one into the city so you could get the best loot. The plan was to attack the next day at dawn. A contingent of soldiers from Belgium were drinking heavily, which was actually quite common before battles. Liquid courage and all. But this group of soldiers went a bit overboard. So overboard that in their drunken stupor, they mistook the setting sun of that day for the rising sun of the next. They thought that they were late for the attack and immediately grabbed their equipment and drunkenly charged across no man's land towards the city walls. All of the other contingents of soldiers witnessed the Belgian mercenaries charging ahead and they now thought they were late for the attack as well. Suddenly, over half of the soldiers began haphazardly charging the walls. As the sun set completely, they were easily repelled by the now somewhat trained Munster citizens. The commanders urged a retreat from the misguided assault. The Anabaptists celebrated their success, and John Van Leiden explained that their victory proved that God was on their side. One day in the summer, a young Dutch girl approached the leadership of Munster with a plan a plan she had gotten from the Old Testament. She said that she could defect to the Prince Bishop's side and present him a shirt as a gift. However, that gift was actually poisoned. The town leadership allowed this, and she carried out her plan. She crossed no man's land and claimed to be a defector, 
and a big fan of the Prince Bishop. Little did she know, however, that another actual defector had arrived the day before, warning the Prince Bishop of her plan. She was immediately seized and placed upon a wheel and tied down. Each of her limbs were broken with an iron bar. This form of torture was called breaking on the wheel, and you may remember it from episode 11 of this podcast about the serial killer, Crispin Jernipertinga. After they had broken each of her arms and legs in several places, they decapitated her. Meanwhile, back in Munster, John Van Leiden continued to make changes. He instated new policies legalizing polygamy and encouraged sexual acts in public as a method of enjoying pleasure God had granted for them. The Anabaptists apparently participated in public orgies throughout the city. John Van Leiden took several more wives. Teenagers were often married off to single men twice their age. This was the breaking point for some. They had to draw a line somewhere. A small coup formed, furious at the idea of marrying off their young daughters. They rebelled against the rule of Van Leiden. However, the mutiny was put down almost before it started. The conspirators were promptly tortured and then cut in half in the town square. The only people that remained in Munster were either complete cowards or entirely fanatical. Both helped Van Leiden's rule. As defectors continued to arrive at the besieging army's lines, they heard of the horrible debauchery going on in the city, and it terrified them. The Prince Bishop, upon hearing of the absolute sickening acts taking place within the city, set up an assault. This would be the first actual coordinated attack against the city walls. On August 28th, the assault started with massive bombard cannons firing into the city walls. The Prince Bishop must have winced with each blast, as the walls that he provided the funds to build began taking damage. Soon after the cannon barrage, the Prince Bishop ordered a general assault. Soldiers eager to purge the heretics, or to obtain as much loot as possible, charged the city walls. They were surprised to see an incredibly organized resistance. Teams of men, women, and even children activated traps and poured oil down onto the invaders below. That oil ran between cracks in the soldiers' armor, burning them alive from the inside. The cannons firing from the gun platforms in the church steeples rained down cannon shot onto the assaulting army. Their constant military drills paid off. Having severely underestimated the Anabaptists, the Prince Bishop ordered a retreat back to their lines. They lost over a hundred men in the attack. This victory provided John Van Leiden even more proof that God was on his side. As summer turned to fall, Munster began to look more and more like a theocratic dictatorship. Soon Van Leiden was proclaimed king, and declared that he was the second incarnation of King David from the Old Testament. He dressed in royal robes and wore a crown. Even though he had failed as an actor earlier in his life, he played this part perfectly. His symbol was a cross over a globe, backed by crossed swords. He began printing the symbol on flags and on currency that was being made from the melted-down gold contributed from all the city's residents. Van Leiden took another wife every few weeks. Meanwhile, Munster starved. The city had been slowly running out of food, and it looked like the besieging forces were planning to wait out the winter. The city began rationing out their little remaining food. 
In October of 1534, Van Leiden ordered apostles to venture out and return with followers and food from nearby cities. Many of these apostles that were sent out were simply killed by soldiers around the city, but some got through. The Prince Bishop, fearing Anabaptist reinforcements, began building a massive wooden wall along the three-mile circumference of the city. Now, any apostles trying to leave would cross no man's land and be met with a dozen-foot wooden wall in front of them. It would cost the Prince Bishop a fortune, but he was now absolutely sure that no one would be leaving Munster without his say-so. As the Prince Bishop's wall was finished and winter set in, the people inside the walls of Munster continued to starve. By this point, they were eating their pets, their boiling leather to eat. Some even began eating their shoestrings. Desperation was setting in. That winter, Bernard Rothman began to send out pamphlets to religious leaders throughout Europe, explaining the theological reasoning behind their actions. Some of these pamphlets even make their way to Martin Luther himself. Luther, upon reading them, said that the city of Munster was inhabited not by Anabaptist radicals, but by the forces of Satan. By this point, Van Leiden has a total of 16 different wives. These Anabaptists used to preach radical ideals of all men and women being equal as brothers and sisters in Christ. But now, some people were more equal than others. John Van Leiden had created a hierarchy that was even worse than what they had had before the takeover. During the winter, food was incredibly scarce. People began eating slugs. People began eating slugs and digging up worms. Many tore up grass and roots to eat. Some ate the moss off the rocks in the river. People began to go crazy. However, King John Van Leiden is not going hungry. He ensures the people of Munster that God will deliver them, although it may be spiritually instead of physically. At this point, the Prince Bishop has a sizable amount of spies. The most prominent of these spies is Henry Gress, who was originally an apostle sent out to convert more people to the Anabaptist side. However, he immediately switched to the Prince Bishop's side and offered to feed him information through the walls. The Prince Bishop agreed. Von Waldeck had leverage over these spies because many of their families still resided in the city. If these spies relayed any false information, their families were almost guaranteed to be slaughtered. Henry Gress made a statement pleading with the people of Munster to overthrow Van Leiden and surrender to the Prince Bishop. This statement was printed onto papers along with a promise from the Prince Bishop ensuring mercy if the city surrendered and handed over their leaders. Hundreds of these papers were tied to arrows and were launched over the walls and into the city. Van Leiden read one of them and made a decree stating that anyone caught even touching an arrow would be immediately put to death. As the year 1535 began, Munster was dying. Suffering cannot even begin to describe it. The Anabaptist religious dream had turned into an authoritarian nightmare. Van Leiden said, they will all be saved on Easter Sunday of that year. Many realized that at the rate people were dying of starvation, most of the Anabaptists would not make it to that date. By now, people had resorted to horrifying lengths in their attempts to stay alive. Whenever a child did not survive childbirth, the stillborn baby was immediately eaten. Anyone who died of starvation was also immediately eaten. 
People even began digging up graves and eating the corpses. After Easter comes and goes, many people simply begin leaving Munster. However, the Prince Bishop does not open any part of the walls to them. They pound on the walls of both sides, but are not let past the Prince Bishop's walls, and they are no longer let into the city either. These people wandered around no man's land, like zombies, until they eventually died. This horrific scene was observed by people on the Prince Bishop's wooden walls and by the Anabaptists watching from the walls of the city. The few defectors that the Prince Bishop had led in earlier all told of a plot by Van Leiden to burn Munster to the ground rather than it being recaptured. The Prince Bishop knew that he had to act soon. One night in June 1535, a large thunderstorm fell over the besieged city. The Prince Bishop sent an elite group of commandos into Munster. Because of their spies, they are allowed in through a series of correct passwords. The Prince Bishop's soldiers have the spies with them as hostages and are ordered to slit the throats of anyone who gives false information along the way. They kill any guards they find and go door to door killing Anabaptist military leaders. By this point, many Anabaptists are awoken and run to join the fighting in the rain. Many women and children set booby traps and fight ferociously. The soldiers are eventually pinned down and couldn't make it to the gates to allow the army inside. Eventually, a ceasefire is called. The pinned down soldiers, the few that were still left, bought time until dawn. One commando then snuck up onto the city walls and screamed for the army to charge. The army began placing their ladders on the city walls while the usual Anabaptist guards were busy dealing with the threat of the Prince Bishop's commandos inside of the city. The soldiers began flooding over the walls. The bulk of the fighting lasted an hour, until the Prince Bishop's soldiers are forced to go door to door, trying to avoid traps and slaughtering any resistance they came across. Some people made a spirited defense, but eventually the Anabaptists are defeated. It took several more days for the Prince Bishop's army to clear out every building, searching under beds, behind furniture, and in basements. Bernard Nipperdalling led a spirited defense, but then disappeared. Bernard Rothman was never found among the hundreds of mutilated corpses. The still well-fed John Van Leiden and his spotless royal regalia surrendered the Prince Bishop himself. Eventually, Bernard Nipperdalling was found hiding in an attic. The three survivors of the Anabaptist leadership, John Van Leiden, a member of his royal council, and Bernard Nipperdalling, were all tied to the same stake in the city square. Hundreds of onlookers were there for obvious reasons, out of curiosity, seeking justice, or simply there for the entertainment. Van Leiden screamed and cried, begging forgiveness from the Prince Bishop, Always the charlatan, he offered to be paraded around Europe as an example to others and in order to repay the Prince Bishop, who was now standing in the balcony of Nipperdalling's house, the very same balcony where John Van Leiden had declared himself king a year before. A massive raised fire pit burned brightly near them. The flames crackled and sparked as two large metal tongs were placed into the pit. A representative of the Holy Roman Empire announced the charges these three leaders had committed against Munster and against God. It was a long list. Nipperdalling appeared to lose his mind. 
He muttered random words, his brain trying to comprehend or ignore the pain that he was about to experience. John Van Leiden was first. The two executioners removed the now glowing hot metal tongs from the fire and approached the screaming ex-king of Munster. They pressed the tongs to Van Leiden's ribs, which erupted into flames. They then tore off large ribbons of burning flesh from his sides and back as he writhed in agony. His suffering would be prolonged as each rip of flesh with the burning tongs would cauterize so he wouldn't bleed out. Over the course of the next full hour, he would be literally ripped apart. The other two, who, remember, were tied to the same stake, saw, heard, and smelled everything. All they could do was wait their turn. It is reported that Bernard Nipperdalling attempted suicide in any way he could, but was apprehended and better secured by the Prince Bishop's men. Finally, after an hour of torture, Van Leiden lay limp, but still alive, some bones visible, chunks of cauterized flesh hanging from every part of his body. The executioner grabbed Van Leiden's tongue and removed it with a burning blade. Lastly, he plunged that burning blade into Van Leiden's heart. The same horrific torture was then inflicted on the other two men on that stake. It's important to note who's inflicting this pain. This isn't some horrifying serial killer secretly doing this to his victims. This is a state-sanctioned torture and execution fully supported by the church. It's nearly unbelievable to our modern minds. But what's even more baffling to me is the people watching. Hundreds of people watching the entire gruesome event. Those same people then watched as the three tattered corpses were each loaded into an iron cage. These three iron cages were raised up on chains and hung from the massive church steeple. The cages still remain there to this day. German engineering, I suppose. Historium is written and produced by me, Jake Barton, and is a proud member of the Orbital Jigsaw Network. This episode is arguably the most brutal one I've done so far. I don't know whether to bow or apologize, since I can't tell if you specifically loved it or hated it. This story was incredibly difficult, as it required many tight ropes to walk, both politically and religiously. With the help of Google Translate, I did the best I could to pour over the German sources, I'm sure you've heard the phrase, history is written by the victors, and I think it's important to remember that in this story. We can't really know how much of the Anabaptists of Munster were demonized, and we'll probably never know. But this story was begging to be told, at least to me, so I hope you liked it. If you're a fan of Historium, you can support the show on Patreon, and you can follow Historium on basically any social media platform. Also, recently, I have started a new podcast with two of my close friends about Dungeons & Dragons. It's called Vox Arcana. It's a podcast that talks about the philosophy, strategy, and game design for running tabletop role-playing games. If that sounds like a podcast you'd be interested in, you can look up Vox Arcana anywhere you listen to podcasts. 
Last piece of news, Historium is now on Spotify. I've had several people tell me they exclusively use Spotify for listening to podcasts, so now anyone you know that listens to podcasts using Spotify can listen to Historium or any of the other Orbital Jigsaw shows there. As always, thanks for listening.